1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Oh God, it's an international break. But don't worry, we can get as angry as anyone else about the number of right-backs in the England squad and Harry Maguire's inclusion. They could get relegated... This weekend, to the championship, we presume. More importantly, they've signed up to the One Love campaign against discrimination in Qatar. Is it good or just PR? Also, we're joined by Ashley Brown from the Football Supporters Association. He's been on a fact-finding mission to Qatar. And apart from, well, the World Cup probably shouldn't be happening there, he'll have some actual insight into what it's like for anyone who chooses to go. There's Scotland's big and crucial win over Ukraine to mull over, the rest of the Nations League to preview. All that, plus a fun-looking Christmas party at Dundee United. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, John Bruin, welcome.
4: Hello, Max. How are you?
3: I'm very good, thank you. Hello, Lars Iverson. Hi, Max. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, and uh, Nick Ames, a a late replacement uh, for Jordan Jarrett Bryan off the bench. Our colleague Will Unwin saying, "Did Nick go full Tonya Harding? (laughs) Is that how you got this got got this gig? Did he have to get changed in the car park?" Says Michael. Um, and uh, Nick says, "What's the biggest job you've ever had to do at short notice?" We have every faith in you, uh, Nick, this morning.
0: Yeah, I, I, I hope I'm not an Ali Deer and you have to to sub the sub after ten minutes. But uh, <laughs> I guess the truth will will tell. Absolutely. Well, I
3: mean, you can open. You can have some real hot takes if you want, and just uh, just just pick a Premier League team at random and decide to hate them, and then just die on that hill. Whatever whatever you'd like to do. Let's start, shall we, with England. We're um, quite close to a World Cup. Uh, they're in a Nations League relegation scrap, uh, playing Italy on Friday, uh, playing Germany on Monday. If England lose, they'll be relegated to League sunk your battleship of the Nations League, for the first time. And they need to beat Italy and Germany to be sure of safety. D- does that mean, John, that this game matters?
4: We still don't know whether the Nations League matters, do we? Uh, now, listen, uh, obviously it matters in terms of uh, more minor teams qualifying because of the, the roundabout way, the I suppose, charge competition you have for qualification for major tournaments. But for those top nations, does it really matter? I'm not sure. And I suppose the gauge that I would use of that is that when I have watched the press conferences with the various England players and uh, I think there's one with Gareth Southgate to come, Nobody seems to have asked them about the Nations League. It just appears to be a series of discussions of football issues, such as uh, social media. Uh, Jordan Henderson talks about uh, events in Paris last last, uh, June, uh, May, June. I'm not sure that the the nation is fully focused on the Nations League, um, when perhaps they should be, because I keep looking at this World Cup ticker and seeing that it's only 60 days away or something like that. But I mean, even even the coverage of uh, whether Jude Bellingham should play, uh, you know, uh, who is, you know, it, there's always a bright star going into a tournament and Jude Bellingham is that guy this time. The discussion isn't about whether he should play 6-8 or, you know, uh, off the flanks or whatever. It's whether he'll go to Liverpool or Manchester United. Um, I think we've lost focus on the Nations League. Uh,
3: have you have you got focused, Lars? I mean, you're focused on all he football is, yeah. all the time. So if anyone is focused, you are
5: focused. I, I like the Nations League. Um, I'm not. I, I'll confess, England's fate in the Nations League is not something that's that's very present in my mind at all times. Uh, I have to admit, though, you can make funny jokes about how the good thing about the Nations League is if you're you're paired against nations that are kind of at your level and if, if if you're not good enough to be in the tier you are then then you get relegated which is what what appears to have happened uh, but uh, I, I think for, for for smaller countries across Europe such as the one I was born in, uh, the Nations' Ring does ratter because, first of all, it is an extra uh, playoff spot uh, for uh, if you win your group uh, for for the next uh, tournament. But it's also uh, coefficient points, which again, if you've grown up supporting England, you've probably never been in a position where you really care about uh, seeding points and coefficients and things. Uh, but, but I suspect some of our listeners from the other, uh, from yeah, you know, from the other nations around this uh, this island and uh, some of the other places around Europe will know. That for smaller nations, the coefficient and what pot you're in for the draw is incredibly big in terms of your chances of qualifying. So in that regard, these games actually matter an awful lot, even if they don't always feel like it when they happen. So I think in terms of what the Nations League delivers, this this will be a party political broadcast on behalf of the Nations League party. For the weaker nations, right down the bottom, it gives them competitive games against nations that are roughly their level. Uh, which is, must be useful for them. For the sort of medium-sized nations, like like my, my own, it, it gives you an extra route into a tournament and coefficient points that can matter a lot. And for the bigger nations, it gives you theoretically competitive games against other bigger nations, which is what they're always crying out for. So it does seem to theoretically take a lot of boxes. And then when it comes around, we're all a little bit, nah. so <laughs> I, I can see that one. It's It's a strange one.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 actually, a weekend where we play Italy and Germany is is quite exciting. But you're right; it just it needs 200 years of history to become a important thing, and that, that seems quite a long way away. And a lot of it, Nick, is the the preparation for the World Cup, right? And the squad that Gareth Southgate has picked. It was last week, but we didn't really touch on it until today. I, I guess the headlines are the fact that Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire are picked, even though they're not playing for Manchester United. And the inclusion of Eric Dyer, who is playing well for Spurs, and Ivan Tony, who is playing well for Brentford.
0: Yeah, and um, that's that's the thing for England, isn't it? The these two games plus before games that we had in June are, are basically your World Cup warm ups. And because of, um, of the timing of a World Cup, when it is, um, it's inevitable that we're going to be watching these games through through that prism. Now, I I think that for Gareth Southgate. Playing Italy away, who 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 haven't qualified and will be quite up for it, you would think, and and then Germany at home. When there's a bit of notion or jeopardy on getting relegated, whether wherever we care about that or not, given that the, the punishment might be a slightly harder route to to the next Euros, um, it's 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 very very. Opportune, I think, t- to have two games like that to sharpen you up before a major tournament. he he he'll be quite de- quite delighted by that. And there are a lot of questions to answer, as you say. um quite a lot of players not been at the top of their game if they've been playing much at all for their clubs. I mean, um, what happens with with players like Maguire um, like and Shaw will be very interesting. I think Calvin Phillips has pulled out, hasn't he, um and been replaced by Jordan Henderson, which presumably, nudges Mr Bellingham a bit closer to, um, to things, should, uh, should Southgate want to go down that route. Um, and it does feel like there's a lot of questions to answer, which maybe we weren't asking at the start of June. And obviously those games went quite disastrously from an England point of view. Nothing really fired going forward. Defence was a bit poor, especially against Hungary at home, of course. And if, if, if I go back to the 0-0 draw with Italy at Molyneux, which I really don't want to do because it was one of the worst games I've ever covered. It was, <laughs> I think that, I mean totally
3: blanked it from. I totally blanked it from my memory. I literally, absolutely blanked it. And do you know what? It was.
0: It was three months ago. I was. I was covering it for us with with Dave Heitner and Barney Rene, and I. I, I, I had to go back just before this pod and read all of our pieces to remember anything about it, um, except <laughs> ex- ex- for the fact that they were booed off at the end by 2,000 school children. All, um, all, the, um, all that I'd remembered, actually, was was, was, was pre-match. Chris, um, Chris Powell was sort of being a one-man entertainment hype man for yes, the kids on the pitch. It. And that was by far the most lovely, endearing memory of it. Anyway, I digress. It It was shocking. Um, I suspect we'll see two stronger teams um, this time out, especially from Italy. Um, and, and I do think England need to show something. I think it would help in terms of morale of, 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 of those who care about such things going into the tournament. I think Southgate needs a good idea of what his alternatives are as well. It'd be very interesting to see if and when Ivan Tony gets some minutes, I think, given that... His international debut will presumably come pretty much in at the deep end against a good opponent, whether it's Italy or Germany. Can can he be your kind of almost like-for-like like, analog for Harry Kane, that maybe Tammy Abraham isn't? He's, he's a, a different sort of player, Tammy, isn't he? He'll kind of stretch you along the lines down, down the channels, where, whereas Tony maybe is a bit better at holding on to, onto the ball. bringing bringing other people in and also has got that set piece ability. So I think issues like that will be interesting to discover where the Dyer can come straight back in and show that he can start a tournament after a year and a half out in the cold. Also fascinating. So so look, in terms of the minutiae for England, there's a lot to get into um, and there's not a very long time to sort it out. And I guess for Southgate, there's the eternal juggling act of tweaking and finessing and finalising and then the fact that people don't expect England to get thrashed which obviously happened against Hungary and then he got a hell of a lot of reaction to it so it's going to be an interesting few days
3: Will I mean and I suppose the question then John is what what are those things that England have to prove and will they and what are the biggest what are the biggest questions from it's interesting to see if Dyer does come in if Stones and what you think Stones, Walker, Maguire is the three that are sort of the set set vaguely in stone does Bellingham have to start lots of people will yell Bellingham has to start and we have to build the team around him for a decade uh and then obviously we judge Ivan Tony completely on 25 minutes <laughs> in one of these games on whether he can be an international footballer or not
4: uh, yeah well and Ivan Tony uh, I, I was I was with Nick on uh, Sunday at Brentford Arsenal uh, in which he didn't get a kick, did he? And uh, So therefore, we've got to rule him out from being any use at all, ever, uh, <laughs> such as the way of these things. No, I think he's a very good player and was overdue a call-up, I would say. Yeah, I'm just looking through the squad. And I suppose the, the issue is, isn't it, that at this time of the season, a lot of players won't have hit their straps. And there are those players who... I mean, obviously, Maguire and Shaw are the two... I mean, they can't get a game for the club, and yet they're called up. And then you've got you've got players like uh, Tamori, AC Milan. You know, is he good enough to step in and replace someone like Harry Maguire? I have my doubts about that. And you've got fringe players like James Ward-Prowse, you know, excellent Premier League player. Um, is he good enough to, to be in, in the England squad? And then you have... And actually thinking about, you know, it's a game against Italy... Uh, and you cast your mind back to Euro 2020, obviously in 2021, someone like Mason Mount. Now, Mason Mount in the summer of 2021 looked a a Rolls-Royce of a player. I know he, what's the car we have to refer to these days? A a Tesla Tesla a a Tesla.
3: And actually, if we're honest, I think it's only centre-backs that can be.
4: Oh, really? So so what would he be then? Like some sort of... uh, uh,
3: I think you just say he's dynamite or he's a guaranteed star, or he's a player's player, isn't he, Mason
4: Mount? Yeah, a yeah, player. he's a player's player, but I'm not sure the players think that that player is.
5: Like he's more of a hybrid yeah. car, you okay. know, not very loud, very efficient, very useful.
4: True. Yeah, but I, I, I think he, the, the engine is sputtering a bit, let's put it that way. I've mm. not really been that impressed by Mount for a while. Now, Chelsea fans could probably set me straight on that, but I do think he's been... Uh, one of the players that suffered a little bit as as Chelsea has have have, uh, have slipped away a bit. <laughs> You've also got the Trent Alexander Arnold question, you know, which is a perpetual question. I'll say it now: I don't think Southgate is going to take him to the World Cup. This will cause a uh, you know a, a big fuss. But uh, on form, you wouldn't take him to the to the World Cup, just as you wouldn't take someone like Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire. But these are the type of questions. Uh, Gareth Southgate's got to answer and as Nick says you've got to do it uh, uh, without getting stuffed uh, in a game by Italy who are going to be really motivated because they've got something to prove themselves Um, hey maybe the Nations League is more interesting than I thought when you asked me that first question
3: England have joined the One Love campaign. A statement from the FA said they'll join forces with the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland and Wales in a campaign against discrimination originally initiated by the Dutch. Uh, It'll use the power of football to promote inclusion, send a message against discrimination of any kind as the eyes of the world fall on the global game. The message will be symbolised by respective men's national team captains wearing the distinctive One Love armband. Harry Kane said, I'm honoured to join my fellow national team captains in supporting the important One Love campaign. As captains, we may all be competing against each other on the pitch, but we stand together against all forms of discrimination. I get, maybe I'm naive to think it's good that these teams have got together, they're talking about something and they're doing something. The reaction hasn't been entirely positive. Adam Crafton, um, right in the armband, says, One Love, too polite to say the words gay rights, I presume. Recognise us if you want to stand up for us. Adam's, of course, Uh, Gay. Beth Fisher, panellist here, said it's grotesque. Jim, friend of the pod, uh, um, also from the LGBTQ plus community, said, look, while there's many more important questions about Qatar, am I the only one that's heartened by England taking part in the One Love campaign? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel like this is going to solve anything, but it, it is possibly better than doing nothing, Nick. Or is it? I don't know.
0: Well, the best that can be said for it is that it's keeping a conversation going, and we're all having bit, um, this conversation now, but I do question whether that conversation is really going to be extending that far beyond all of our Twitter echo chambers um, about the extent of of what they've done. I, I, just, I, I just think it isn't enough. You've You've got to be bold and brave enough to call these things out for what they are. Say what you're supporting, say what the discrimination that you are fighting against is show it and I think it's all just a bit mealy mouth for me. I I yeah um, the more I think about it actually it's 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 one thing having a conversation but we, we've been having these um, these conversations about how football should act and how football should, um, should respond for so so long and this simply prolongs them. It doesn't it it, it just kicks things into the long dress. So I'm I'm fairly a little bit negative and skeptical about what they've landed on, to be honest. And I think they could have come down with something much more powerful and much less sort of shrouded in corporate speak as well.
3: Yeah, uh, we've had lots of tweets about saying, you know, should what's the point of continuing these conversations if we don't ever get anywhere? I guess, you know, a podcast is a platform where you have conversations. It's quite difficult to stop them. We've got lots of plans pre-Qatar for what we're going to do on all of these subjects, on all areas of the discrimination Um, and we're talking to some very interesting people, and we will bring those to you uh, before the World Cup. Um, That'll do for part one. Part two, we'll begin with a football match that actually happened. Scotland beating Ukraine 3-0 last night. Finding your perfect home was
1: hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish; they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com/acast.
0: It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, ''Hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody.'' But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages?
1: He actually said to me, good luck, proving it's me.
0: And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further.
2: Do you punish someone for acting out
3: whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand?
0: And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm showing Carlay And this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September.
3: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Scotland 3, Ukraine nil. Um, that puts Scotland top of League B Group 1. They had 24 shots against Ukraine's three. If they win the group and then they don't qualify for Euro 2024, they'll get a second shot by the playoffs. That is why this is important. John, you watched the match. And actually, Scotland were very impressive in this game, weren't
4: they? Yeah, they were They were excellent. They were excellent. And uh, again, belying my uh, lack of interest in the Nations League, this game had a lot of needle, you know. Uh,
3: you don't, don't know yourself, John. No, do you? that's, no. The, that's, well, that's what we learn from this.
4: You're not the first person to say that, but um, <laughs> the, 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 I, I obviously Scotland met Ukraine over the summer, uh, and maybe there was a bit of residual feeling there, but there was a lot of challenges flying in. We should actually sound a note of well, if not caution, actually very sad to see Nathan Patterson, who's been such a good player for Scotland over the last couple of years. Making a, a bit of a uh, a name for himself, at Everton went off with what looked an injury. I'll wait, news on that. But uh, Scotland picked themselves up from that from that blow and played really, really well. But it, there was a point when it did look as if they wouldn't weren't going to score, despite absolutely dominating. Now I've seen that story before from Scotland, and we weren't quite in Chris Illumo territory, but uh, it, it it just wasn't happening. John McGinn scored a very Scottish-style goal. And the reason I say Scottish-style goal, I think we've discussed on this pod before, Kenny Dalgleish's big bum. Now, Kenny was, yeah. in, this, Kenny was in the stands <laughs> uh, with his good lady wife. And uh, now, I think in the Premier League, this goal might have been disallowed because John McGinn used his sizeable, though no doubt firm, rump to shove the defender out of the way. Get be first to the ball and finished very well in a fashion actually we haven't seen too much for Aston Villa this season uh, so uh, but yeah so and that started it and then Lyndon Dykes uh, I think scored his first goal in a year came on very impressed with his tattoos I must say uh, really really you know snaking up the neck to the point of you know is he going to go for the face Scotland were excellent uh, at any game is uh Made better by Ali McCoist's enthusiasm bubbling, and he loved it. And yeah, it was a great performance. Scotland. It must be strange being a Scotland fan at the moment because they have been quite good over the last few years, haven't they? Missed out on a World Cup that was pretty, you know, they, they weren't good enough to get there. I still think Steve Clark's doing a good job with them. Um, and uh, again, there's someone that has a lot more interest and uh, belief in the Nations League than I do. So. Well done, Scotland.
3: Yeah, and I guess actually, Lars, if they did get promoted to League A, if they win this group, they would. That would actually be great for them. Sounds That sounded really patronising. Yes, <laughs> <didn't> it? yes <laughs> it did. God, <laughs> sorry, Scottish people. Sorry, Barca Jim.
5: But it would be good. And I haven't checked the implications for the coefficient, but I mean, if it pops them up into pot two in the draw for the next qualifying uh, campaign... That's a big deal. Uh, You know, these are the things that sound really boring, but in terms of actually making it to the tournament, to a tournament, it it makes a really big difference. And I think with Scotland watching this team, I I, I speak as someone who's from a nation that has been quite rubbish for a while. Like we've got some really tasty players now, obviously, but there's been a couple of fallow decades for us. And, and the thing I sort of increasingly started to think is that if with the national team, you, you've got the players you've got, right? It's not like a club team where you can be annoyed at the club for not buying better players. For the national team, you, you have the people you have. So you can kind of reconcile yourself with not being the best team in the world. But what you do want to see are players who run around a lot and, and, and fight and, and kick people and just sort of you know go, go into battle for you. And uh, I, I think watching this game I mean, whatever else you say about Scotland there was a, there was a lot of desire on, on display here and they I thought they you know outfought Ukraine to to a large extent and uh, and they got a few play a little bit uh, players who are a little bit decent so th- they can be a threat
3: obviously Nick Ukraine didn't turn up for this game like they did in that game against Scotland before which was so sort of wrought with emotion that that last game that set up the playoff with Wales. Um, Pete says, can we get an update on next excellent Ukraine piece? Are games generally going ahead okay? I don't know if you've kept in touch with how the Ukrainian league is going.
0: Uh, yeah, and thank, thanks for the question, uh, Pete. Um, I um, I think the fact that you might not have heard much about it in the last month or so is good news because it tells you that nothing serious has happened beyond what's what's on the pitch. There have been no... I mean, the, the, um, the first air raid interruption came i think the an air raid siren interruption came i think the day after i left a month or so ago in a game in the west and the game was um, suspended for a while but then carried on and that's been much the case since um i think they're now four games in the team at the top are a fairly small but well-run club outside kiev called kolos kovalivka and Everything is pretty much going to plan and as the protocols that I, I discussed at some length from Kiev um a few weeks ago are are still going on. So no, it's it's been a resounding success so far. And obviously it's something that they keep reviewing on a day-to-day basis because that's the only way that anyone can review things at this moment. So yeah, we keep our fingers crossed. As as for the national team yesterday, yeah, they I mean it it wasn't the anything like the intensity that we saw in that game in, at Hampden in June when they absolutely out, outplayed Scotland. I think they missed Zinchenko yesterday, actually, who wasn't fit to play. He's got, a, I think it's a thigh injury, I, I can't remember. Um, but in in that game in June, he, he put, I mean, for me watching in person, one of the great individual performances, he was just absolutely everywhere, just an absolute man-possessed. So they missed him, but were quite deservedly beaten as, as John has outlined last
3: night. Uh, Wales go to Belgium. Lots of Welsh fans over there, but they're bottom of their group. Uh, no wins. Um, they don't really care because they've got a World Cup to play in their first World Cup for decades. That group could end up with Netherlands-Belgium in the final game. Could be kind of a shootout for who gets to the finals of the Nations League. Yes, John?
4: Yeah. Uh, looking at the Belgium squad the other day, and um, I noticed that... Um, one of the uh, Roberto Martinez, still the manager, and uh, I was looking at their squad, and it feels like a sort of Premier League all stars of about five years ago.
3: Is it the golden generation, or now what? The it's brass, got, the, the, the brass generation. generation.
4: Right. Yeah, and and you know this this just shows you that um, you know if you're a small country, you you enjoy it while you can because it it might not last. And you know, they've still got you know Eden Hazard is still the captain, still just thirty one, still at Real Madrid. In case you were wondering the play that really stuck out to me apart from Dedrick Boyata who again still just 31 was Jason Denier uh, who doesn't have a club I, th- I saw a classic uh, Roberto Martinez described his situation as suboptimal <laughs> which I thought was which I thought was <laughs> being unemployed
3: but we did we did kind of speculate didn't we that Gareth Bale might do that he might just play for Wales I mean he's not playing a huge amount but he is enjoying his club football yeah. in Los Angeles but I
4: suspect J- Jason Denai would like a club but can't get one for some reason he's only 27 uh, perhaps, he? perhaps he's had wow. injuries but you know I mean, again, yeah, actually, some of these players are younger than you thought. I think, but they really but, are. Yeah. Dedrick
3: Beatta can't be under fifty. I'm not <laughs> no, having it. I just, <laughs> I just don't believe it. Uh, Wales correspondent Ben Fisher joins us on Monday, on his day off. He says, "I mean, there's no days off in this job." He has promised red-hot Wales chats. Uh, we'll be the judge of that. Ben uh, Northern Ireland played Kosovo uh, on Saturday. They'll be safe uh, if they better Cyprus result in the final two games Um, failed to do that they could end up in the playoffs the relegation playoffs for a place in the bottom tier with teams like uh, San Marino Uh, just a note before we end uh, part two um, David Conn uh, has got an exclusive in the Guardian about the Champions League final and apparently that the UEFA statement blaming Liverpool supporters for causing a delay was pre-prepared a considerable time before the day of the match Uh, the big screen at the Stade de France Uh, announced that a delay to the scheduled 9pm kickoff uh, of the final was due to the late arrival of fans, um, uh, which it wasn't. And uh, obviously, we'd spoken about it a lot. There is a Today in Focus, which is out today on their pod feed. But if you don't download that, we're going to stick it on our feed tomorrow. And you can have a listen to that episode because it is really important. Yes, John?
4: I was just going to say, uh, there's a very good interactive guide to what happened in Paris as well on the website as well well worth the look okay very yeah, good go and have a look at that
3: yeah um uh, because it's an important story and uh, another uh, a big and important if yet depressing story from david conn uh, that'll do for part two uh, in part three uh, ashley brown from the fsa joins us he's been to qatar to find out what the fan experience might be like
2: before shopify were you wondering where are my sales at
3: Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. James says, have they started building hotels for the people going to Qatar yet? Or will people be sleeping in tents on the streets? Have they built the streets yet, even? Um, Look, we can actually get into a bit of what it's like in Qatar uh, with Ashley Brown from the Football Supporters Association, um, who we have spoken to many times on this podcast. Um, Thanks so much. You've been to Qatar, Ashley. How was it?
2: Yeah, I was there with a colleague a couple of weeks ago. Um, It's A lot further progressed than it was in December last year when we last visited. A lot of the hotels are finished. In typical Qatari fashion, I think any building that isn't finished, they're being told to put the outside up first, so at least it looks finished. Um, So it doesn't look like a building site. And although the roadworks are still ongoing, it was a lot better than last time we were there when the roads were being dug up all over the place.
3: Were you a guest, like of, the, of like a World Cup committee, who's getting fan groups to go over there, or were you just going of your own volition? Could you go where you wanted and poke your nose around, or were you very much kind of led by some sort of official?
2: No, no, we we were we were there on our own uh, with our own planning. Um, the FSA always tries to do a recce of any country, any city that England's playing in, and we had planned that and arranged some meetings with various people from the Supreme Supreme Committee. Um, various hoteliers and bar owners, as well as the British Consulate out there. As it happened, the week that we were going, they were hosting the La Salle Cup, which was the sort of opening test event of uh, of the World Cup final stadium. So they did ask us if we'd stay on and provide a report of what we thought about uh, the way that that ground worked. So we did stay an extra day or so uh, at their invitation and they provided us tickets for that so we could go and check it out.
3: Um, OK, let's start for, for fans, who are thinking to go, I've heard lots of things about accommodation, it not being ready, you've kind of touched on that, but how it's going to cost absolutely buckets to get there or you're going to be staying somewhere else and staying on a ship or staying in a different country and flying in. What's what's the vibe that you get now?
2: Uh, so let's start with the ships. I think if if you're lucky enough to be on a ship, um, you've probably got a pretty good setup up there. Um, there's two cruise ships, they're trying to get a third. Um, I think all your food you can get all food and drink packages included uh, on the ships. you'll be able to watch the games on the ships and you're fairly central. so you're probably made if you if you if you're there. Most people probably aren't in hotels. Um, FIFA kept uh, 80% of the hotel rooms for themselves and a lot of the other hotels with the tw- use the 20% for their existing contracts with like the oil and gas companies, etc. So there's been very few hotels available uh, Next week, uh, I believe FIFA have to start handing back any of the hotel rooms that they're not using. So we may see some appear, but you know, any hotels that we've seen have been ridiculous pricing. A lot of England and Wales fans will probably book themselves or have booked themselves into the apartments um, or the sort of cabins slash tents that are being built out in the desert. Um, we didn't see the cabins. We spoke to people who had seen the cabins. Uh, I can't be too enthused about those to be honest they're probably not going to be the most interesting places to stay they couldn't give us any firm commitment on what type of entertainment food and beverage etc will be available just that there will be i guess on the positive side there will be regular free buses running from all those locations to other places into the city where you can go and perhaps find something to do apartment wise not many of those are, are central. Uh, West Bay is the central area of Doha. Most of those are either to the north or the south. But again, um, there is free bus services running from those key locations to get, to get people around the city. If I'm honest, it's going to be a little bit different World Cup to, to, to most of the normal ones that, that people have been, would have been to before. Um, you are going to be a bit out on a limb, I think, in some of those accommodation locations. Even if you do bus into the city, there isn't a huge amount to do, to be honest. And of course, there's a lot of people all in one space. This is the first time we've had all the team supporters in what is effectively not a huge city, um, let alone a country. And that's going to be interesting. Uh, where people are going to go, where they're going to find, what they're going to find to do, uh, where they're going to buy a beer—all of those things will be challenges. And we've we've been. Pulling together some information that we will provide England and Wales fans uh, in the, in the coming weeks, which will hopefully help them.
3: Yeah, booze is a part of a World Cup, right? Going out, having dinner, having a drink. It's consuming alcohol is illegal, but there are certain exceptions. What does that tangibly actually mean?
2: Yeah, so I mean, let's let's start with a definite no. So, no off-sales. Um, you cannot buy off-sale alcohol in supermarkets anywhere at all. Um, residents may be able to buy it if they have a permit, but you won't get one. Don't even think about taking alcohol into to the country, um, buying it duty-free and carrying it through. If you are found to do that, your best effort is it gets confiscated. Your worst is that they stick you on a plane and send you back home again. So don't even try that. So where can you, where can you get booze? So the booze is available in the four and five-star hotels dotted around Doha um, in their bars and restaurants. But it ain't cheap. Outside of a happy hour... For a pint of something exciting like Heineken or Budweiser, you will be probably talking in the region of 12 or £15. Pounds. Oh, I mean, you haven't been selling it. <laughs>
3: you haven't been selling the cheap, <laughs> <blimey>, 15 quid. <laughs> Whose round
2: is it? Who's round is it? I'm all... I'm all wow. If you're lucky enough to find a happy hour and it's your round, uh, you may get away with something as cheap as £7 for a pint. But actually, you know... you've Getting into those bars is not going to be easy. It's not like going into London and you know there's being bars and cafes and restaurants all over the place. You know the numbers are limited in Doha, so I actually finding space, particularly when some of those hotels are already taken up uh, with with teams or with other re, uh, other FIFA delegations, and therefore not necessarily accessible um, to to the likes of us normal fans, that will cut some of the capacity out. Um, the other places you can get a drink, so the, the big fan festival um, at Albida Park, this is a fan festival with the capacity of 40,000 people, supposedly. You will That will sell alcohol between 6.30 and either midnight or 1 in the morning. So no good if you've got a daytime game to go there and get a beer beforehand. It will be dry up until 6.30 in the evening. As that's a FIFA event, it's Budweiser only.
3: Oh, that's worse than the fifteen pounds.
2: <laughs> they wouldn't tell us what the price is going to be. They said that they will make it affordable. We're not quite sure. Affordable to an English fan and affordable to a Qatari are two different things. Um, but hopefully, it'll be reasonably priced. The only other fan festival site that will sell alcohol at this point in time is Arcadia, which is if anyone knows, Glastonbury, the great big giant metal spider that has a DJ booth in it. They've taken that all the way out to Qatar and are doing daily uh, dance house rave events from Bizarrely. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you've got to be joking me. Well, you wait to hear the hours of this one because this is the bizarre thing. This runs from 10 in the morning until 5 the following morning what? and supposedly can sell alcohol throughout that period.
3: All right. But you have to be at a rave.
2: And you've got to pay a minimum of £75 to get into the rave.
3: Right. Okay. Um c- can you can you talk to us about broadcasting rights? Um, because I don't I, I, I don't I, I couldn't envisage why that would be a problem or, or or different or whatever.
2: We found out something interesting, we were there. I think at most England and Wales fans and probably fans from around the world will expect to go to Qatar, if they've got an apartment, if they've got a hotel room, they flick the TV on and they will be able to um watch the football, watch the games. That's going to be one of the only things to do in Qatar, let's face it. Um, what we found out is that the Bein, who obviously own the sports right there, Qatari-owned company, um, are basically charging a premium for the for hotels and bars. So the hoteliers we spoke to have told us that they are being asked to pay significant sums for each location that they want to show the football in. And by each location, if they're a hotel that's got 10 10 bars and restaurants, some of them have, they've got to pay a charge for each of those. So the hoteliers we spoke to said that a lot of our smaller places, the smaller cafes, it's just not worth us paying uh, the fee. So we're restricting where we're showing it. Worse still, they're saying that they're not even going to show it in their hotel rooms because the fee to pay to do that is astronomical. So one hotel we spoke to that's got one of the teams staying in it actually said that the team, the players, aren't going to be able to watch... The, the World Cup games in their rooms <laughs> that's you know that that's something for in travelling fans to bear in mind I mean there are ways of course I wouldn't like to suggest it um, but I believe there are ways in which you can connect to back home perhaps through a PC and, uh, and watch the game as if you were in England and I think that's probably advisable for anyone going out there to take a PC and an HDMI cable um, and see what they can do because um, sadly uh, it looks like Being able to watch the football everywhere you go around the country is not going to happen. We did push back on this. We we told, we explained to them that this is such a significant part of a tournament for everybody and we urged them to relook at it. But uh, I can't see it changing. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us about um, antisocial
3: behaviour. Obviously, you know, football fans, obviously unlikely to be wasted, but, you know, very, very rich football fans who drunk 10 pints of beer for 150 quid, um, they, they might, you know, have a fight. Bad idea anywhere, not a good idea in Qatar, right?
2: Yeah, I think, I think um, there's two sides to this. We're, we're told that um, the Qatari police, the extra security forces, have all been taught about the sort of behaviour to expect and told to be um, lenient. But on the other side, you know, the the travelling fans are going to have to respect the the difference in culture here. And there's bound to be some clashes. We had some bizarre discussions with the security guys around certain scenarios. The one that stands out is we asked, you know, what happens if, if an England fan in the stadium, middle of the day game, it's hot, takes his top off, waves it around his head or whatever he might do, or just stands there with his top off. Certain England fans do that all the time, whatever the weather. Um, The stack response there is they will be thrown out of the stadium. Um, And we said, well, you know, guys, you realise this will create a situation that doesn't exist. You know, if you do that, people around that that area will question why this person is being ejected because they wouldn't have seen them do anything wrong. Uh, And the flat response was, no, they will be ejected. Now, I think part of that is them just quoting rules and regulations in front of us. I, I can't see it happening, but... We are going to have to be careful. We, we may have to change the way we act a little bit, the way people would normally act on a tournament, might be frowned upon. And I think the key thing is if anyone from the police or security services out there asks you to do something, just just do it. Don't, don't become confrontational. I think if you become confrontational, that's when things will escalate. That's when you might find yourself chucked in the back of a police van and you want to try and avoid that in Qatar. Can we talk about
3: LGBTQ plus supporters? Obviously, the we will do podcasts about the experiences of Qataris uh, from the LGBTQ plus community and and what their life is like for fans who who might be going. I mean, I would from what you're saying, I'd be amazed if anybody go. I mean, amazed you're going, right? amazed anybody's going. But like specifically, I'd be very surprised if any gay fans went. But what what is the situation going to be like? Do you think if they did,
2: I think they'll. I think it will be fine. The disappointing thing is is that the, the state and, and FIFA have just repeated the standard line is that everyone's welcome. They haven't addressed specifically that LGBT plus fans are also welcome. If we speak to people living there, um, they will tell us that, look, in reality, there's actually a sort of thriving gay scene in Doha. It's tucked away. And as long as effectively it's out of the way, it's allowed to continue. Um, so it's not like people are sort of being banged on their doors and being dragged out into the streets um, you know, if they are an LGBT plus person but nevertheless it's disappointing that we can't get a more firm commitment from either FIFA or the Supreme Committee that LGBT plus fans are welcome Um, so yeah I mean I I don't think there's many of the LGBT plus England travellers that are going, I know one or two have been considering it but um, because of what they hear about the country, because they can't get reassured about their own safety, or in fact that they're going to be made to feel welcome, they're not going, and that's of course disappointing. I think that going forward, you know, FIFA really ought to look at where they award World Cups, and part of it should be based on welcoming absolutely everybody and a firm commitment to make that clear.
3: The stadiums we haven't touched on yet are they? Do they look all done and finished? Um, obviously. As again, we will do pods about how they've been built and the people that have suffered to build them. It almost feels trite to say, like, "Are they ready?" But are they?
2: Stadiums are stadiums are ready. Um, some of the surrounding perimeters still look a bit like a wasteland, um, but by the time the World Cup comes, they'll be full up with you know the, the the FIFA sponsors and there'll be all the colors that you'd expect of all the FIFA sponsors. I'm sure they'll be fine. Travel to the, to most of the stadiums is is okay. Um, some of the stadiums you have quite a long walk once you get there, if you get the metro to some of them, you have to get off a metro then get on a bus, get a bus and even when you get off the bus, you may still have uh, a mile or so walk to the stadium, Um, so that it's another thing that we've raised with them not everybody um, that travels around and watches football around the world is completely mobile Um, and it's not just about whether you're in a wheelchair or not, there's plenty of people that are are, are ambulant disabled and there's certainly not enough facilities to deal with that there's no spaces for people to rest I mean when we went to the game a couple of weeks ago it was, a, it, was it was about 35 degrees um, it's not going to be that hot in November or December but it still may be 25 27 28 and when you're asked to walk a few miles to and from a stadium in that heat with nowhere to rest nowhere to get water some people will suffer and we've made that very clear to the Supreme Committee that they need to try and think about that.
3: Just as a fan, is there any part of you thinks, I might just skip this one? (laughs) It's
2: it's not, you know, it's not going to be the greatest. But I think, you know, when we all went to Russia four years ago, despite what's happening with Russia at the moment, everyone thought that was going to be a dreadful World Cup. It turned out to be a fantastic experience. Um, So I think there'll be some real positive moments. I'm sure... The the newspapers and TV cameras around the world will capture some amazing pictures of like huge groups of sixteen different nations of fans all gathered together into a great big picture. I'm sure there'll be some great experiences like that, but it's not in a way. It's I suppose it's going to be hard work to make some of that fun. Uh, whereas normally everything becomes comes a lot more easier, a lot more natural when you're going to a country just for a tournament such as this.
3: And have you got any idea how many England fans are, are planning to go?
2: We think. Like so, classic England fans that are members of the England Travel Club coming from England or Great Britain, somewhere in the region of two to three thousand in the early stages. If England were to progress to the final, that will jump probably to eight or more thousand. But the thing, the big unknown uh, that we've been trying to get information on is the expat community. So, in Qatar alone, there is 22,000. British expats. And in the greater region, the GCC region, the Foreign Office tells us there's over 100,000. A lot of those lads will be on, lads and lasses, sorry, a lot of those will be on probably quite reasonable, potentially low-tax salaries. And a trip to Qatar from Dubai will be quite simple for them. They might not be a typical England fan. They might have never even seen an England game home or away. But we expect to see the stadiums quite full for those sort of people.
3: And actually, I mean... Wales fans, you could imagine it's for England fans who've been to lots of World Cups, they can say, I can miss one. But Wales fans, despite all the, you know, ethical dilemmas, et cetera, you know, this is their chance, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And we're expecting a similar number of Welsh fans. You know, we work closely with uh, with our guys that run the Welsh Fan Embassy. Um, they think similar numbers. They know a lot, as we do for England fans, a lot are going to stay in Dubai and, and try either drive across the Saudi across Saudi Arabia to the border uh, or get the cheap flights in and out um, and again these are things that we've discussed with the Supreme Committee and with the consulate out there they're all very aware of that the Saudi border will be open you won't be able to take your car from Saudi Arabia into Qatar you have to park it on the border and there'll be a bus service to run you in um, but those things are possible and people are planning them to save money brilliant um Ashley Brown thank you so much
3: um and uh, Worth mentioning as well that the uh, nominations are open for the Football Supporters Association Awards. If there's any podcast or radio shows you would like to nominate, you're very welcome to. <laughs> Cheers, Ashley. Take it easy. We don't have a lot of time, chaps, but God, that sounds absolutely terrible, John.
4: Listen, uh, before every World Cup, there are scare stories about how bad things are going to be. I mean, you know, I went to South Africa, I went to Brazil. Both were fine. But actually, in, in, in what the thing that, about this World Cup is, it just sounds like it's going to be apart from the football, so so bloody boring,
3: yeah. and you can't even watch the other games. I mean, that's insane.
4: Well, that 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 bit that that bit, yeah. I mean, uh, when we sent a checklist of that, uh, that was flagged up, and I didn't know it was going to be that bad. But then when I thought about it, I thought, okay, yeah, um, yeah. So you can't even watch the football. You you. Uh, I mean, listen, you know, you don't have to go and drink there. Of course you don't, but that's what England fans do. Um, And to go to that tournament, it's going to cost a lot of people a a lot of money from what was described there. Uh, It still feels, uh, beyond the the obvious questions of human rights and how the, how the, uh, the bid was won, that this is a wholly unsuitable venue to hold a World Cup, which, after all... And if you've been to these events, you'll know is that brings together nations to watch football together. Um, and this appears to be completely inhospitable in, in a different way to other countries uh, and a deeply boring one. Not for me. I'm glad I'll be in Macclesfield and East London. just shit, <laughs> shit,
5: isn't
3: <it>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we move on, Lars? Erling Haaland's been asked about sp- sports washing, um, yes. which is quite interesting given his move to Manchester City. What's he said?
5: Well, he's been put in a slightly awkward position. Well, or I suppose Norwegians have been put in an awkward position because uh, there's been a very strong anti-Qatar World Cup sentiment in our country, and now suddenly our uh, shining light is is playing for uh, for an Abu Dhabi owned club, uh, which is a little bit awkward, I suppose. And uh, the question he was asked in a presser uh, now after joining up with the international squad was this is the question, the owners at Manchester City are accused of massive human rights violations and for imprisoning their own citizens. You're now playing for Manchester City. Oh, what do you think about the owners for uh, of the club you represent? And he answers, I've never met them, so I don't know them like that. W- w- which is quite a thing. Uh, and, and followed up by saying, these are very uh, strong allegations you're making when you put it like that. The only thing I can really do is not say anything about it. I think uh, the, I think the words you're using are a bit strong. Uh was was his reply, uh which I think is I, I suppose it's better than not interacting with the question at all. He he could have gone the sort of the Eddie Howe route and said I'm just a football man. Uh but it, I don't think it's an answer that'll convince a lot of people who are already skeptical of this arrangement. And you know, he he, he goes on to to point out that I've been a City fan my whole life and talked about how, how I've made my decision with uh, because of the coach and because of how he thinks he'll develop in a sporting sense, which I'm, I'm sure is true. But it is a slightly weird uh, situation to be in. I think the national team coach, uh, Stolas Ulbukhin answered perhaps a little bit more eloquently when he was asked uh, about the subject and said that what I think is that it's very difficult to put that kind of responsibility on an individual uh, and he f- said that city have been approved by the Premier League. so where the line should be drawn with all that stuff is very difficult to say. It's much more it's much bigger than just the individual. It's a much bigger political question than something the individual has to be responsible for was the line from the national team coach, which I suppose seems a little bit more reasonable. but I, I don't know them like that. It's probably not the best reply. Uh, I, I, I would wage I would say.
3: Uh, Naz says a couple of things. Hi, Max. I'd really appreciate if you can give a shout out to the Bangladeshi women's team for winning the SAFF Women's Championships. We beat the host Nepal in the final 3-1 in front of a sold-out crowd of 15,700 people. The biggest step for women's sports in Bangladesh ever. Congratulations to you. And uh, slightly different, Tommy sent a tweet saying, it's all fun at Dundee United this Christmas. Um, I don't know if this is a real tweet from Dundee United. I, I very much hope it is. But they're advertising their Christmas party, and it says "Christmas at Tanadice." Get into the festive spirit with the return of our Christmas party nights across December, priced at just forty-five pounds per person. Uh, top <laughs> Gl- <laughs> glass of jizz. Uh, it's a one. Wonder- it's an absolutely tremendous typo, isn't it? <laughs> you get a glass of jizz. <laughs> <laughs> three course Christmas dinner, entertainment and a live DJ. And also the emoji they've used for glass of jeers is champagne. Uh three course dinner is a plate. Entertainment is the dancing emoji. And next to live DJ is a woman in a wheelchair, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Don't miss out. Hashtag united in pursuit. So very much hope that um hope it's real. Um because it's funny.
4: Well, that'll be four hundred and
3: fifty quid in uh,
5: Doha. So I don't know what anyone's, <laughs> don't
4: know what anyone's complaining about, 15, really. Fifteen quid a pint. <laughs> Fifteen um,
5: quid a pint. Uh, honestly, gif. that's how much it is. <laughs> the, 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 way, the way the 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 whole setup in Doha is described, it sounds like a very elaborate scheme to promote abstinence from from alcohol consumption. It's like it just put people into a very sort of hot world where you have to. Go to a sort of dystopian rave with a giant spider to have a drink, and the only thing that's available is like Budweiser or Bud Zero. The only
3: time you can drink is to have a Eurobop at 10 in the morning. (laughs) For 75 quid. Wow, God. (laughs) That'll do for today. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Lars. Thank you, Max. Cheers, John. Thanks for having me. We'll be back on Monday. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove with Uzi Marjid. Our executive producer is Christian Bent.
0: This is The Guardian.